Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Michael Rivera about bone. Michael is an anthropologist and archaeologist, and he's also a podcaster himself. He hosts the Arc and Anth podcast, which is about archaeology and anthropology. In his day job, Michael specialises in the study of human bone and human teeth, and how we can use archaeological human skeletons and human remains to understand how people lived in the past. And really interestingly, as you're hearing this episode, this includes making processes and some of the earliest tools and how ancient civilizations used making practices with bone materials, as we'll discuss in this episode. I was super excited to have Michael on the podcast. I've followed his work in science communication on Twitter for a very long time now. And as luck would have it, we were able to sit down during the European coronavirus lockdown for this chat about bone with the usual video software teething problems. Am I coming through now? Aha, yes, you are. It's because I had you down on my Zoom. Apologies. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Professional podcaster here. Yes. (laughs) I I don't know. Sometimes, um, sometimes guests. We met over the airwaves, myself from London and Michael from the Netherlands. And as you'll hear, um, there's a small section about halfway through where I switch to a slightly different audio feed for my part of the conversation. So don't be alarmed when that happened. I know that it's in there. I'm sorry. It doesn't last for very long. Anyway, enough about that. I started by asking Michael if there's a difference in materials between bone and teeth? Ah, uh, that's a great question. So, um, no, they have some similarities. Um, They're made up of a lot of the same elements. So um, we're going to be uh, talking about, you know, how bones and teeth are made up of calcium and phosphorus, but uh, the different ratios between them and what other minerals there are in them will be slightly different. Um, trying to think of like some very clear differences. So teeth is a lot harder. Um, it is the hardest part of the human body because uh, it is mostly consisting of like this uh, calcified tissue, this really calcium rich tissue called dentine. And the tooth 
um, the tooth's dentine tissue is is covered in enamel, which is really, really hard. It's that sort of hard layer uh, that you brush every day, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, in comparison to like your bones, it, it just is a lot more, um, it's just a lot more tough and a lot more uh, hard. Uh, bone is a lot softer, um, which is why in many different societies around the world uh, today and in the past, you know, bone has been malleable enough to actually use to shape and then to, to make st- uh, bone tools. But um, teeth, on the other hand, is uh, different. Um, another, like, another two differences I can think of is uh, that, that tooth enamel, unfortunately, doesn't really have like, the same uh, regenerative powers. So unlike bones, teeth cannot really heal themselves or like, grow back together. So once you, you know, chip a tooth, that tooth is broken. And so it's different from a bone because, um, you know, maybe some of us, when we were younger, when we were kids, we, we had a bone fracture. Uh, what happens is like new bone cells will, uh, come in and try and like fill that gap and repair the break. But, uh, a, a cracked tooth doesn't really happen like that. You're, you're going to have to need a uh, root canal or, um, you know, extraction. And then, uh, you're, you're going to have to have a fake tooth basically, uh, put in. Yes, to the delight of dentists around the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they make a lot of uh, business doing that. <laughs> um, and the third difference I could think of is that uh, bone has bone marrow in it. So bone produces the red and white blood cells that we need in our uh, systems. Uh, teeth do not. So, so bones really, um, you know, they're, they're uh, made up of like a very hard layer on the outside. The cortical bone is what we call it. Um, and uh, I remember uh, when I was an undergrad feeling very just fascinated by the fact that inside that cortical layer, outside that hard layer inside, there's all this spongy bone. Um, and that can be really important as well for sort of understanding that material and understanding that biology. Uh, there's a lot of things that that spongy bone inside actually provides to, to our systems um, in terms of like the physics of how our body works. Right. So bone is structural as well as serving biological purposes Mm -hmm. in the body. Yeah. So what did early humans use bone and teeth for then? Oh, the uses are so, so many. Like, I I don't even know where would be a good place to start. Um, But, you know, bone tool is a very generic term that we use in archaeology to describe almost any tool, any implement that is made up of, you know, animal tissues, such as bone, such as tooth. Um, You know, some animals have antlers as well, and some others have ivory. So all of these things we would describe as a bone tool. And uh, the uses have been, you know, uh, a lot. So uh, one great example would be to use bones for getting food from the environment and some of the earliest cases uh, of these bone tools being made by humans, we actually find like in uh, South Africa. Um, I was really surprised to find this out um, during one of these uh, lectures that I attended earlier in my uh, studies. But uh, there is a species, one of our human ancestors called uh, Paranthropus robustus. And uh, we were taught that this is a fossil mainly found in South Africa, and it dates to about you know, 1.2 to 2 million years old. So a really ancient species. 
um, that lived a long time before Homo sapiens. And if you look at the skull of a Paranthropus robustus, you wouldn't recognize it as human because it is a, a creature, a, a human-like animal that actually has really um, big teeth, really big cheeks. And it's interesting to, to wonder, like, what were they using such big jaws and teeth for eating? And alongside some of these fossils or quite near these fossils, we actually find the uh, examples of something that looks like a bone tool. And we, we can see them there. They're kind of like um, long uh, tools made of, made of bone. They were probably made by some kind of like uh, antelope bone or some sort of uh, other similar animal. And they would actually use the ends of these bones. So you take one of these long bones and they would actually try and dig into termite mounds in order to get termites to eat because termites uh, to them uh, are really rich in protein, really nutritious source of food. And through this repeated use of like sticking it into the ground, into the mounds, the sand and the gravel would actually like start to um, uh, rub up against the ends of these bones and become rounded and, and become polished. And we can actually study this and um, under the microscope and, and actually see the evidence that these ancient hominins were using it to get food. So uh, using bone tools for food is a very, very common use of, of bone tools, but uh, there, are, there are hundreds more as well, but I'll start there. Um, so you mentioned the the food applications of the stone tools. Were there any other applications or sort of cultural uses for the materials? For sure. Um, throughout prehistory, uh, in many different parts of the world, uh, we have a lot of like ritual and decorative and cultural and social uses for bone. We actually have evidence of uh, bone flutes from, you know, around 800 or 900 years ago uh, in America. And uh, besides that, we also have examples of a lot of bone carving we have examples of feats and bobbins and things that they would attach to their uh, clothing. Um, we also have bones being used for things that seem recreational. So we have things like um, something that looks like poker chips. Uh, I don't know if they're playing poker, you know, 5,000 years ago, but <laughs> something that sort of looks like, um, you know, gaming money or m gaming currency, um, dice, mm. of course. And uh, one of my favorite Two of my favorite things. So uh, one, one, another example that I have from ancient China is that there are these things called uh, oracle bones. And the ancient Chinese, particularly like in the Shang dynasty, they would write their questions about the future or about, you know, the, the kingdom or about their family. And they would write their questions down on an oracle bone. Um, a lot of the time they would use a, a turtle's shell. Um, not really like the shell that you can see on the top, but the bottom part, like if you were to flip a turtle over upside down, they would write their question on mm. that bit there. They would burn the bone. Um, and then they, wherever the bone cracks would be the answer to the question that you asked about the future, these oracle cool. bones. Um, and the second favorite thing that I, I love talking about uh, culturally is this practice called scrimshaw which is used by a lot of uh, very northern latitude populations like North Finland um, on, the, on the sort of northeast coasts of uh, Canada and in Alaska as well. We actually have scrimshaw happening. And scrimshaw is uh, basically engraving and carving that is done on bone ivory. 
bone or bone or ivory. So a lot of the time, you know, whales and seals, like these would be the animals that, uh, you know, ancient people and even hunter gatherers uh, living today would, would eat and rely on. And once they get that bone from the whale or they get those tusks from walruses, they would actually start to put lettering and pictures uh, on the surface of these bones. And if you Google scrimshaw, you'll actually find a lot of examples of this beautiful ivory carving. Uh, it, it's really quite remarkable. Would that have been a um, like an early writing surface? I'm just thinking because I've done some research on like the history of paper, which, um, as I'm sure you are aware, came out of China, and then um, other people like the ancient Egyptians developed papyrus as their writing surface, which was obviously different, and then clay tablets and wax tablets. But I'm wondering if you know these early, um, very northern people who wouldn't have had access to say the wood for making paper would animal bone have been an early writing surface for them i think so i think that that's very possible i think that um you know almost all groups in the past uh it, it becomes a matter of whether we can find evidence for them but uh all groups in the past would have had some way of communicating and they just so happen to sort of find you know they would find use for communicating with each other with with symbols and with lettering i think that you know scrimshaw could be a good example of them uh, employing the materials around them that they had in order to um, form messages or leave behind stories on uh, in the form of bone carving mm, so cool and it's great to hear about so many different um sort of local material use in local cultures as well throughout history mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I think I was mistaken before when I said, well, I implied that it was only humans as a species that have used bone tools, because of course mm-hmm. that's not true, right? As you've just explained, like an early um, similar creature to humans um, used bone tools. But there are other species today that would use a bone tool as well, are there? I think so. Um, I think that there are examples of uh, chimpanzees in certain parts of Africa, as well as uh, some species of monkey in the uh, in the Amazon forest in South America, that have been shown to use uh, wooden tools or bone tools in order to sort of you know scrape uh, termites um, from a mound or to scrape insects out of a tree, um, all kinds of things. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's it yeah. must be quite a kind of innate. Um, instinct, I suppose, to reach for these sort of natural materials to use for our advantage in tools. Um, and you mentioned one making process with the bone, which was to sort of polish it. Mm-hmm. Um, what other making processes do we know about in terms of sculpting or changing bone as a material to make it useful as a tool? Mm-hmm. So, um, the, the, the one I've already spoken about um, has been used in many different contexts, this sort of method of polishing and sharpening and grinding by sort of um, you know, rubbing it against some sand or against a, a rough kind of stone. Um, another one would be just to break the bone. So um, if you imagine that you have a cow's uh, leg bone, like maybe their uh, you know, femur or tibia, and you were to just sort of drop this really large hammer stone onto it, what, that, what would happen is, first of all, you would get to um, 
as a human being, uh, say you were living 50,000 years ago and you're kind of hungry that day, the first thing that you're going to do is um, access all that nutritious marrow from the cow's uh, bone cavity, right? Um, you're going to extract all of that marrow and you're going to have a great meal. <laughs> um, after lunch, you're going to get on with business and you're going to try and make some tools. And once the long bones of these large animals are cracked open, they actually break up, of course, into a lot of like sharp splinters. And these splinters are what are really appropriate and really suitable for uh, use as sort of like picks or uh, scrapers um, so that you can sort of like scrape uh, food perhaps off of the animal even further. So if you imagine that um, you know, ancient hunter-gatherers or farmers, they used to um, you know, eat animals, they would also have to sort of, they would ideally like to scrape off as much meat and flesh off the animal as possible. So that's what these sharp edges um, of, of these splinters are going to be useful for. You can use them to sort of like scrape off everything <laughs> off of the animal. Um, and then, you know, you can also use stones. You can actually use a stone and try and even modify those sharp edges even further. So sharpen them really, really finely to the point where they are extremely sharp. Um, there are many uh, coastal societies in the past, in fact, that have, have done this. And they are using these cow bones or deer bones, sharpening them up to, to almost like a needle, uh, fine you know, sharpness, and then they can use that for uh, fishing as well. Um, they become hooks, they become uh, harpoons, they become spearheads. Um, and, and this is something we actually see the world over in coastal societies um, at the, uh, on all of like the coastal Mediterranean. A lot of early human groups used to do that uh, in Scandinavia as well, in Southeast Asia, at the tip of South America and Terra del Fuego. Lots of, lift, uh, lots of different groups were using these very delicate bone tools. So when we think of Stone Age humans or Stone Age societies, um, mm -hmm. it wasn't just stone that they were using, they were using bone as well. For sure. Um, and yeah, that's the thing about studying history and archaeology. Like these terms that we use um, will always sort of be limited in what we call them because uh, say we really enjoy these bone tools, we're going to name a period after them. We're going to call them the bone age. Mm. And of course, we'll be ignoring all the stone tools <laughs> that are used, all the wooden tools, um, all the other yeah. materials. So as an archaeologist then... Um, mm -hmm. What is the process that you go through? Say you find a bone artifact. What are the things that you look for in it and what tests can you do on it to glean the information that you want from it? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, we would first want to uh, radiocarbon date the, the material artifact. So um, we will uh, try and sample it. We will um, get either a, a bit of the... Um, it depends on what the material is. It depends on what kind of um, animal it is. But in most cases, we are able to uh, get a radiocarbon date from the animal bone itself. So we're sort of chip a little bit of the, um, maybe the marrow inside, some of that uh, spongy bone as well that's inside. And then we're going to crush that. We're going to um, uh, we're going to process it a little bit chemically, and then we're going to uh, find out what is the date of the of the material. Um, that way, we can actually say that this uh, this bone tool was belonging to a certain culture or a certain time period. Um, 
if we're looking specifically for, you know, to, to sort of prove and find evidence for their, their use as tools, we might examine them um, both macroscopically and microscopically. So just by looking at the bone tool, like on the surface, macroscopically, we can actually uh, observe some of these grooving effects, some of these polishing effects and smoothing effects that I've already mentioned before. And then we might also look at it microscopically. And this can be really interesting because by looking at the uh, scratching on these bone tools, we can actually find out a little bit more about how they were made and also what they were being used for, which is quite remarkable. Um, a lot of the time as well, archaeologists will do experiments. So they will actually try and reconstruct those bone tools themselves. So this is literally meaning they will go to a butcher's and they will say, do you have any cow, bo uh, cow bones you know, available? Can we just sort of borrow some or can we buy some off of you? No way. Yeah, they do that. And then they'll take it back to the university. Um, and in the lab, they will uh, use some uh, stone tools, which they, of course, have also made. Um, and then they will sort of bash the bone and try and uh, make the same shape. And then they will use it on, uh, again, some real um, animal hide, some real animal meat, and see under the microscope whether the ones that they've experimentally made match the microscopic patterns that we see on archaeological ones that's um, so cool i love this idea <laughs> of researchers in their lab coats in their labs you know mm -hmm. recreating these stone age processes yeah with gloves of course and uh, safety goggles <laughs> it's such a lovely juxtaposition between like ancient technology and yeah like a modern setting mm -hmm. i love it yeah a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So having then recreated the processes and tried to understand um, how the markings have been created in the making processes. What can we then learn about the people from the past? So um, it is really interesting to know how people were using these bone tools and also using these bone tools as opposed to other ones, right? To, to other materials such as stone or such as uh, wood. 
um, thing to know is that you know bone tools actually preserve uh, less likely than stone tools. And so if you in hundred years or 120 years that archaeology has been around as a discipline, we have a heavy, heavy bias in understanding how stones were used um, in human society. We have a lot of stone artifacts um, that include tools that were used by modern humans and all of our predecessors. We have very low, we have much lower um, assemblages of bone and antler tools. So any discovery of, uh, of bone or antler tools that we can confirm under the microscope is really important for us because we're then able to discover this side that we might not have even realized was that important. Um, for my own PhD, for example, um, uh, again, like I'm an osteologist, I study bones, I study bones in humans specifically, but to understand their lifestyle around these skeletons, I also needed to look at the bone and antler tools that were used around them. And it is thanks to all the work of people who are working in the Baltic region, where I focused on. Um, all of these archaeologists have been brilliant at identifying um, all these, including things like harpoons, um, bone chisels and bone blades, bone knives, bone ice picks as well for sort of like picking, uh, uh, picking through the ice and, and ice fishing in the winter. Um, that was really important. So... Yeah, there is. There has been a really great bias in uh, sort of understanding how stone tools were were made and used, but uh, that's the sort of thing that we are very interested in: is to develop new narratives and to add nuance to these narratives about the past of bone tools. And why do you think it's important for us to understand these people that have gone before us? This is a really good question because uh, every time I go home to Hong Kong and I am sharing what I have learned and what I'm what I'm researching with my family, uh, I remember in the early days during my undergraduate degree that there was just very little, um, you know, understanding uh, because people haven't really been exposed to the fields of uh, archaeology and anthropology that much, and. But then there came a point, I think around uh, my master's or the beginning of my PhD, where I started to share a little bit more with my family and my friends back home. And I was telling them about what I study. And then suddenly, all of, their, all of the questions came out. So suddenly, they were asking me things like, you know, what, when was the first time there was a human ever in Hong Kong? Or, um, you know, why is it that genetically we have black hair? Why is it that we don't have red hair? Or, um, oh, I've read something in the news about this mummy or about this bog body in, in Scandinavia. Have, have I studied that? Like, what do I think about, you know, this history or this archaeology? And I think that that is what really is, uh, I think that that is really what makes archaeology that exciting and that interesting. Because everybody, while they are working as doctors or engineers or um, as teachers, they don't have time to consider some of the questions that we do in our field. Um, but everybody is curious about their own heritage and about human history and where did we all come from. Um, so building that picture and being able to reconstruct life in the past and how we've developed and evolved is providing those answers for, all, for everybody else. Uh, everybody is very keen to understand their own um, you know, their own origins and, and their own diversity as well in, in all of our like very diverse societies. Yeah, for sure. So it's still completely relevant to modern life. Mm -hmm. 
What do your friends and family back home think of you as an archaeologist? I think that they, um, I mean, when I was a kid, I was very um, nerdy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I always had like books about, I don't know, like books about the pyramids and, and books about like human anatomy and uh, space and dinosaurs. And, you know, I think that they always knew anyway that I would probably be ending ending up doing something like academia or doing something like science. Um, mm. So it's, I don't think it's that surprising to them, but uh, they definitely find it fascinating, and the way that um, the way that I guess when you're an anthropologist, you kind of have an answer for everything. You've at least considered every aspect of human life that there is at some point in your studies. I think that they find it quite fascinating that they can ask me any question, and I probably have something to say. Um, <laughs> that's pretty I, cool. I think that that's pretty pretty funny. What's uh, what's been some of your most surprising or favorite or funny questions that you've been asked? <laughs> um, I uh, the first thing that I think about is uh, not for my family, but I remember doing a science festival event where I had a a bunch of bones in front of me, and I was trying to um, tell kids coming into the science festival about life in the past, and I had this um, artist's uh, recreation of prehistoric Japan that was sort of like painted uh, onto a like into a framed picture and I had that on my on my station and there was this little um, Chinese Chinese kid uh, with his mom and I could tell immediately that they spoke Cantonese and they were probably from Hong Kong and had lived in the UK um, you know only moved to the UK only very recently Mm. and the and so I did all of my outreach in Cantonese, which was the first time I had ever done that uh, also. So that was pretty cool. Nice. And the the child, uh, I think that he must have been, you know, maybe four to six years old. And he just saw the picture and I was telling him about uh, what, the, what, what Japanese people, um, you know, 4,000 years ago were eating. Uh, they were eating, uh, they were, you know, in the beginnings of processing flour, they were fishing. And the kid asked me, did they also eat noodles in Cantonese? And I was just thinking to myself, oh, wow, I have no idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is such an interesting question to consider. And um, I told him that that is a great question, that if he is uh, interested in being the first one to find out, then he can consider being an archaeologist one day. Um, that, yeah, maybe one day he will find the uh, evidence for the first uh, noodle-making in prehistoric Japan that we are all, uh, you know, desperate to find. Um, yeah. What an amazing contribution to science that would be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course I told him that, you know, when he goes home, he should eat lots of noodles. Of course, it'll make him, make him, uh, you know, very, you know, very strong, very healthy. Uh, it'll contribute to like the health of his, uh, skeleton, but yeah. Yes. Important research as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what was the research topic of your PhD and have you discovered anything equally as groundbreaking as Jap- Japan's first noodle? <laughs> um, well, uh, when I went to do my PhD in Estonia and Latvia, I was looking at around 160 human skeletons and I was just really curious to find out uh, from the human bones what happened to them between 10,000 years ago and more recently, like around 2,000 years ago. And over that 8,000-year period, are there interesting things that have been happening to their diet, 
to the things that they were doing, um, the ways that they would sort of organize their um, their economic life, and whether there were any changes also in their health levels um, as a response to maybe climate change. So climate changed quite a lot in that 8,000 years. Uh, whether they were responding to different pressures like uh, incoming groups into the region from from the south and from the west and from the east. Um, the biggest takeaway that I found from studying this group in the Baltics uh, from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic to the Bronze Age and Iron Age is that they were very complex in the behaviors that they would engage in. Um, I think oftentimes in archaeology, and if you read um, you know, popular archaeology books and books about human development, there is this generalized story that a lot of human groups began hunting and gathering and fishing, relying on wild resources, and then slowly they transition into farming uh, kinds of lifestyles. And they would actually start to develop, you know, bigger, um, uh, bigger communities, and they would start to have like stratification and hierarchy in their societies. And what I found in my population was not the case. It's they actually began having a lot of complexity already, right from the moment that they inhabited these um, areas that were quite uh, low land and quite coast uh, and quite close to coasts. So um, there was evidence of a lot of tool specialization. Like I told you, they they would make all kinds of different artifacts out of antlers and bones, like like fish hooks and scrapers um, and knives. When they were deciding how to fish over the year, there was a, a lot of. Um, we actually have a lot of evidence of them having catchment areas. So they would on, they would divide up the, the seaside into different sections and they would only fish in certain parts at certain times of the month or certain times of the year so that they wouldn't over-exploit um, the, you know, certain areas around them uh, so that they could control how much, how much uh, the fish were allowed to grow uh, or not allowed to grow. So there was a sort of like very eco- ecologically sustainable way of uh, fishing and besides relying on like these aquatic resources, they would also go into the forest. They would have a lot of uh, wild food. They would hunt. And they would also experiment with farming just a little bit as well. So all these, you know, this great dependence on very diverse food sources. So, you know, the Baltic Mesolithic people and the Neolithic people, they were very, very interesting. And they didn't need to sort of transition into farming, you know, that um, quickly or that sort of eagerly, why would they when they already had like a great system and great resources all around them? That's amazing that you can find out all of those different things just from the skeletons of the people that lived at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, it is really a niche skill, but I think it's a really cool skill uh, nonetheless. <laughs> For sure. Um, like if you gave me a ske- if you had a skeleton in front of me, I would be able to tell you things like roughly at what age they uh, passed away, at um, you know whether they were healthy or whether they had some sort of condition or disease. Uh, what did they eat? What what their occupation was, or some something interesting about their cultural life? There there is a lot of stuff that we can tell from skeletons. Very cool superpower. I love it. <laughs> yeah. um, what are the most exciting questions remaining in the field of archaeology with bones? So what I see 
which I think is a product of, you know, a lot of our research circles being a lot more globalized. And we have conversations now with scholars all over the world almost every day because we have conferences that are having, um, you know, far, they reach far further nowadays. Um, more people from different countries are meeting together to discuss ideas. We also, of course, uh, have a lot of social media and a lot of different outreach channels where we can actually find each other now. So, you know, every single day now, I seem to be talking to uh, people in different countries. Like I'm able to talk to someone in Mexico and someone like in South Africa, in Peru, in Indonesia, and just ask them like, what's archaeology doing now there? How's it going in the Philippines? Um, anything exciting happening in South Korea? It's just really fascinating to me that the research has changed that much since I began uh, doing anthropology almost 11 years ago now. And from that, we start to ask questions that are a lot more global. And we start to ask questions about human evolution that sort of concern big scale movements of people in the past and big theoretical concepts um, about the past. Um, when you asked that question, it made me think about this uh, theoretical line that we actually talk about when it comes to tool use in the past, which is called the Movius line. The Movius line is this line that sort of um, is on a map uh, developed by this uh, archaeologist called uh, Hallam Movius and in 1948. And what he thought was that there was a distinct difference between people, between the tools and the tool technology that we use in you know, Africa, Europe, parts of the Middle East, and into India, a distinct, uh, a distinct difference between them and the tools that we would use in East and Southeast Asia, Australia, and the Pacific. And the reason being that, as I said before, there are, there's a great dearth, a great lack of stone tools that we can find in some parts of the world. And anything East of India is, is the region that I'm talking about. But we have actually a lot of uh, we actually have a lot less stone tool evidence east of that line, this Movius line. And I think that where we are going next is actually finding a lot of exceptions to this. So only in recent years, in the last five or 10 years, we have, first of all, been able to find a lot of stone tools um, in parts like China and parts of like South Korea, these hand axes that were made there. And the other thing about it is that what about all the wooden tools? What about all the bone tools? Just because we can't find them and they preserve less likely than stone tools doesn't mean that we weren't making them in the thousands, you know, um, that we weren't making them. Maybe we just haven't found them because the environments in the sort of Southeast uh, jungle or in the Chinese deserts, they just don't preserve, uh, you know, non-stone tools that well. So I think that with more archeological um, work in the, in the future, we're going to be able to find a lot more exciting things about paleolithic technology in these parts of the world. That's fascinating. So there's a lot more work then to be done. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah. And a lot more uh, collaboration as well between, um, you know, different labs in, uh, in Asia uh, with the, uh, you know, labs in America or Europe or the UK. So earlier you mentioned um, public engagement, and I know that you've got your own podcast about mm. archaeology and anthropology. Um, what is that and where can my listeners check it out? Yeah, sure. Um, so my podcast is called the Arc and Anth Podcast, 
which means, you know, the Archaeology and Anthropology podcast. And we basically just try to provide a lot of content very similar to yours, which is uh, educational, but hopefully um, entertaining. And I often find like when you do interview style podcasting, I think that people love hearing hearing sort of the science through the through like sort of eavesdropping in on a conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, people can go to arcananth.com. So A-R-C-H-A-N-D-A-N-T-H.com. And they can find out, you know, all the information about the podcast. Um, of course, you can find the podcast on all of your normal podcast channels uh, at the Arcananth podcast. So uh, find it on Spotify or Stitcher or SoundCloud, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts everywhere that you can find podcasts, basically. And if people have enjoyed hearing about you and want to keep up to date with what you're doing in your um, adventures in archaeology and anthropology, are you online for people to follow as well? Yes, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Michael Rivera, and you can find me on Twitter at Rivera Michael. Um, I also have some, I have an About Me page on the podcast website that people can go check out as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Michael. It's been really great to talk to you about the materiality of bones. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anna. So that was the wonderful Dr. Michael Rivera. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to come on the podcast. Follow Michael on Twitter at Rivera Michael and definitely check out his podcast, The Ark and Anth Pod 2. You might hear a few episodes ago, a familiar voice. We did a podcast swap and I went on his podcast to talk about materials and making processes. And just to finish up, I've got a very special announcement, which is that you can now support the podcast financially, if you want to, zero pressure, um, by giving a one-time donation facilitated by our new podcast host, Acast. If you feel like popping a few pennies into the handmade podcast coffers um, to help keep the podcast going and pay for things like um, hosting on Acast and the editing software that I use that would be hugely hugely grateful and it really will help to keep the podcast going if you want to do that then you can head over to supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade or I'll put the link in the show notes as well so that's all for this episode. As always, I'd be very grateful if you had the time and inclination to rate and review the podcast. You can always say hi to us online. We're at Real Talk on Twitter. That's R-I-A-L Talk. And we're also, very excitingly, on Instagram. Uh, on there, we're at Handmade Pod. As always, I'd like to thank Dave Shepard for our marvellous cover art and Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next time, we'll be joined by scientist and aerial circus performer, Dr. Nate Adams, speaking about the materials that he uses in his circus practice, silks. So until then, thanks very much for listening. It's been great to have you here and I'll see you next time on Handmade. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.